I'm Asan, and welcome to another special 9320 podcast. So, we uh, added a pod with Steve the other day where we kind of discussed the Premier League charges and also just what it what it means to be a supporter in the post-takeover age and how that compares to what life was like before the takeover and really just what, existentially what it means to be a, a City fan in, in this modern age. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Joe and by Ali to discuss more or less the same thing. Morning, Joe. Morning, hey, son. How are you doing? You're excited to do this podcast, aren't you? Yeah, I've got a lot of pent-up frustration I'm going to unload. So, yeah, I am excited. Excellent. Ali, how are you? You got a lot of pent-up frustration? Oh, God, it's been... It, it, like, imagine a balloon filled with ketchup that you just keep pumping it in and then pumping it in and, and it's going to pop any minute now. Excellent. Well, look, um, I'm going to start with you, Ali. So the the first question I've got for you, and it's it's something that I've thought about a lot, and that is... Do you remember City before the club were taken over? Yeah, I do. Um, I'll, I, I think I told the story before in this pod, but I'll, I'll go over it quickly again. I moved to Manchester in October 1992. Hmm. Um, and actually, the, uh, the, the day that I came for a job interview in Manchester was at the end of August 1992. And on that day, uh, Alex Ferguson's Manchester United were bottom of the league. And I know that because it was on the same day that, uh, that, what's her name, Sarah Ferguson was all over the Daily Mirror for sucking some dude's toes in a swimming pool <laughs> in Marbella or something. And the, the Daily Mirror that day, uh, had page one, uh, Fergie's toes, page two, Fergie's tits, page three, Fergie's bum. Uh, and then on the back page, the uh, football headline was Fergie's bottom, which was <laughs> one of the greatest <laughs> headlines of all time. And it's because three, three day, three games into that, uh, into that season, uh, Ferguson hadn't won a game. United hadn't won a game. And I think it was actually the same time that Alan Hansen went in match of the day and said, well, you're not going to win anything with kids. Um, the next few years when I lived in Manchester uh, coincided absolutely perfectly with the the explosion of uh, Fergie's babes and, and that, that United generation. And the whole world was going crazy about the world's richest football team. Um, and United started winning everything. And I, by personality and, and, and nature, uh, I always side with the underdog. So I moved to Rushholm. I was living a couple of hundred yards from Main Road. Uh, and I've started going along to, to the occasional City game, often as an away supporter, actually, because if I had friends who were going along to watch West Ham or Arsenal or whatever, they would come to my house and we'd have a beer and then wander along there. Uh, so uh, my first experiences of, of uh, kind of falling in love with City uh, were... It wasn't about uh, anything to do with their football. It was all about the comedy. Um, I was in Manchester, living just along from Main Road, actually directly opposite the training fields on Platt, on Platt Lane. Um, and uh, I watched a very close hand as City did this ludicrous um, uh, uh, corporate collapse uh the the all the chaos that was going on ar- around the ownership um the nonsense that was happening on the pitch at the time remember when we uh we 
uh, managed to get herself relegated by by playing out for time. I don't want to remember that. Right. I don't want to remember that. I don't know. Oh. Why, I don't know why you're bringing that up. Uh, this was not the point of this question. The point of this question was not for you to make me revisit childhood trauma. I, Absolutely I, not. I, I apologize wholeheartedly to you and all the listeners. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, I fell in love with the comedy. Uh, and I fell in love with the underdog. And of course, I was there when uh, City did that, you know, the, the, the collapse through the divisions and then the the playoff games, the Gillingham playoff and, and you know, all of that, that history that we've now been through. And by the time we got to, uh, well, the move to the new stadium, but also then particularly the Kevin Keegan era, all happening around the same time. Um, it was that Kevin Keegan team, you know, the, the Ali Benarbia and then laterally Sean Wright Phillips and like just a whole lot of really attractive, uh, fun football. Uh, and that was when I, I stopped feeling sympathy for City. And by about 2002, 2003, I was feeling full, Full-blown, blue-hearted love. Uh, so that, you know, that that was how I got in in the first, you know, first days. Joe, um, if we if we kind of fast forward to, I guess, the Thaksin year, right? Um, do you do you remember that? Do you, firstly, do you remember the Thaksin season? Oh yes, I do indeed. Yeah, and how like. What was your relationship with City and with top flight football at that point? And what I mean really is what was the height of your ambition at that point as a City supporter? What do you do you think you had some like tangible thing that you could look at and go, well, if we win an FA Cup or if we win a League Cup or when we qualify for the Champions League? What was your when Thaksin came in, what was the height of your ambition, do you think? So I guess in order to answer that, I'd have to give you a bit of a background as to my foundation as a City supporter. Um, mm. So, <clears throat> both sides of my family, on my mum's and my dad's side, are all City fans. Um, we're actually City fans because my granddad's uncle was Eric Brook. So, it's literally non-negotiable in our, in our family. Part of the family. It's, it's exactly. you know, that's how we got into the club. Uh, and obviously, my granddad, uh, on both sides of the family, were in the prime of their match-going days when City won the league in 68 and, you know, that golden era before the modern era. So it was always kind of drummed into me that, despite the fact I was watching the likes of, you know, Jamie Pollock and Lee Bradbury, that City were very much a sleeping giant with incredible potential, um, a team that had had fantastic players throughout its history, probably up until the 80s, if you're honest. Um, whether it's Bell, Lee, Summerby, um, and you can go back to, to players like Doherty, Brooke, uh, Billy Meredith. It was just a club littered with legends of the game. Um, and that if they could just get it right, they'd get into a position whereby they could be not competitive in terms of what we know City has today, but a team that could, you know, challenge for an FA Cup, a League Cup. So that was probably the height of my ambition. And it was certainly emboldened when their taxing came in because obviously going into that summer, there was such an unknown quantity around it. And we signed players like Alano, who we didn't know a great deal of, but they were Brazilian internationals. So my thought was, <clears throat> and how wrong this turned to be, let's get on a stable footing with taxing. Um we brought in one of the greatest managers of, of the 90s from Italian football in Sven. So 
I was thinking along the lines of we can push into kind of where Spurs had been in those previous years, i.e. getting to League Cup finals, playing in Europe, knocking on the door of the Champions League. And I was expecting that to happen over a kind of two, three-year period. Uh, that was obviously <clears throat> everything going to plan, though. But that's how I mm. I felt the club could move. I thought everything was in place, the stadium. We had some great young players in the team. If you think about Stephen Island, Michael Johnson, Micah Richards, there's a lot of optimism around the place um, that summer, 2007. So to answer your question, I've gone around the houses. I felt we, we were capable of a good cup run and, and establishing ourselves as a good UEFA Cup slash knocking on the door Champions League team without any and, city-itis. And how did, you, how did you view, and Ali, I'm, I'm going to ask you this afterwards, how did you view the the clubs at the top at the time. So what I mean by that is, you know, Chelsea were in their Roman era, yeah? Um, Wenger was around. Ferguson was around. I think Benitez may still have been the, the little, was the Liverpool manager at the time. There was a, <clears throat> you know, the, 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 there was a clear hierarchy inside the Premier League both in terms of success, but also kind of how that success was connected to money. United, as, as Ali said, in the 90s, Man United were proudly hailed as the richest club in the world. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, uh, at the time, it really wasn't a put down to say United had more money than everybody else. It was something I felt growing up that England and the league as a whole we're really proud of the fact that United was so successful and had all this money and could attract foreign stars. So where where did you sit in terms of your support of them? And what really what I'm asking you here is just were you were you asked? Did it bother you? Did it make you jealous? Or was it something that, well, that's their business and my business is City and I'm over here? Yeah, pretty much nail on the head. I, I was just all city and, and over there. I, I this is obviously really vivid to me because you know this is when I was kind of in secondary school and, and finishing uh, and going into to college, etc. So these are time as a football fan, I feel these are times where are really vivid in the memory uh, as your formative kind of you know outlook on the game. So it had been drilled into me for years <clears throat> that I was purely a part of the Sky era. There was an established order with a glass ceiling that if you threatened them, would start picking off your players. You know, I'm thinking of players like Berbatov and Robbie Keane at Tottenham. Um, so for me, they were always going to be set in place uh, as your top four. Because if you remember, it was always like the big four. Uh, and, and it was always, you know, they'd have Sky would have that inevitable weekend at some point of the season, Super Sunday, where they'd all be playing each other. And it was billed as this mega event. Um, but yeah, they were kind of the untouchables, if you will, with Liverpool, the poorer cousins in it. And then the, the top three above them had more of the wealth, specifically Chelsea and United. Um, and that there was then a glass ceiling. And then the best you could hope for is that Arsenal or Liverpool would have a, a bad season and you could potentially nick one of them spaces for a, for a season, is how I remember it. But if you did become too much of a threat, as I say, they'd just basically like buying doing the Bundesliga come and nick off your squad so it was you know they they were there for the long haul the 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 romantic good old days I guess is the way that those people would would look at those now yeah Ali were you 
ever resentful of other people's success? Did you find yourself looking over the garden fence at the neighbor's shiny new toy and wishing that you could buy those toys? Uh, oh, uh, I don't think I thought about it in those terms. I think I was always aware that the nature of football, and particularly elite professional football, is that the best players will go to the most successful, biggest clubs. Um, and I remember kind of the, the, the notion of clubs' profitability and uh, income generation and, and the size of their bank account being slightly detached from the the uh the te- the players that they bought and the teams that they, they could put out and all the rest of it. Um so I remember when uh in the mid nineties probably United started reporting annual profits of like kind of fifty million pounds a year or whatever, which in those days was unprecedented. Football teams, football clubs had never made money before. Um mm. and just a few years after the Premier League had, had really kicked in, um it it started to uh, uh, reap the rewards from their point of view. Um, but I never thought, um, there was anything untoward particularly about United paying 30 million for Rio Ferdinand or, you know, whatever the, the big signings were at the time. Um, and partly that was because, you know, I'd, I'd, it hadn't been long before that I think the British transfer record had been, uh, Everton bought Duncan Ferguson for the Rangers. Uh, for about four and a half million quid. And that was like in the early 90s. And so there was this sudden explosion of money at both ends of the game. And it's just kind of how it was. I just, I just accepted that if you are, um, if you are going to follow Premier League and, and Champions League football, then what you're following is a, is a, you used the phrase like a, a global entertainment franchise. Um, and that there was loads of money swashing around. But it always seemed to me that uh, even as a city fan in you know, in the mid two thousand, so you know, kind of two thousand, well, they you know, talk about the uh, the Shinawatra years. Um, at that time, you could get players. It, it felt like you could get players who maybe weren't the most expensive players in the world or or in the league, but who would turn into superstars. And there was always a hope you could do that. Um, and I think that is actually still true, but a lot of the, the narratives and discourse kind of seems to forget that nowadays. Um, it's become much more mechan- mechanical, mechanistic, whatever. Um, so yeah, do, I mean, does that answer your question? I, I, I don't remember feeling does. jealous, put it that way. Um, mm. I, I remember feeling, uh, that there was just, there was, there was a, it felt like forces of nature that, that just, you know, wealth breeds success and success breeds wealth. Um, and if, if you are following Premier League football, then, then you are following a really big multi-million, multi-billion pound game with, with everything, you know, that implies. Thanks for listening to the first 15 minutes of the show. To listen to the full podcast and all our contents, including reviews, previews, analysis, quizzes, and much more, Go to 9320.com to sign up now, or simply click the link in the description. So what are you waiting for? Go to 9320.com now for the best, most passionate, impartial coverage of Manchester City and beyond.